my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, glad you're with us. Ladies, happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you, uh, whether you are a mother, look forward to being a mother one day, have been a mother. Uh, we just love you, and we are so glad that you're here today. Uh, by the way, if you didn't know, we do have a special gift for you this morning. Uh, that you can pick up, uh, and you can stop by the Welcome Center and grab that. Uh, there's some little plants out there for you. Very cool. So uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite Christian authors and scholars by the name of N.T. Wright, he, he talks about um, the book of Acts extensively in his commentary, and one of the things he says in and around this chapter are these words. He says, what you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of community you are. Now, there's a second half to that statement, which we're going to get to in a minute. But he's speaking specifically of the church here, and he's saying, listen, how you utilize your money and possessions says something about you. It speaks loudly about who you are. And he can speak of that, I think he says that about our community, but it also means something for us individually as well. You could change that easily to say what you individually do with Money and possessions declares loudly what sort of person you are. And we would know that to be true, right? Like, we know that how a person uses and their, spends their money says a lot about their values and their priorities in life. Communally and individually, what we do with our money and resources says a lot about us. Whether we like it or not, it says a lot about us. And how the first Christians dealt with money and possession said a lot about their community. The second half of N.T. Wright's quote is this. I'll read it again. What you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of a community you are. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. More than 100 years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven... An ancient church historian, a Christian himself named Tertullian, penned these words in his book, Apologeticus. He said, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Tertullian says that our brand is based upon how we use our money and our possessions. It is a trademark of who we are as the church. It's so much a trademark that even those outside of the church, like the Roman emperor Julian, recognize that clear and definite declaration the church made by their use of money and possessions. He said this, the impious Galileans, which by the way was a, a way in which the Roman emperors and those who are part of the Roman Empire referred to the newly formed Christian church, the impious Galileans, he says, support not only their poor, their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Look, can you imagine? The Roman Empire is the richest, most wealthy, most powerful empire that had ever ruled the earth at that, until that point. Some say it still is one of the largest and most powerful empires to ever have been on the earth. And the Caesar of Roman empire, that Roman empire says, it's the church that cares for their people 
and uses their money and their resources and possessions to take care of not just their people, but our people even better than the Roman Empire. I mean, the first church, that early church had a reputation. One that in many ways, I think, has been lost in our 21st century world. But I also believe can be regained by looking at the life and the example of the first church, which is what we're going to do today. So, if you haven't done so already, open up your phone or your tablet or whatever you got to the YouVersion app. You can follow along with everything we're going to read today. Or if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. And as always, everything's going to be on the screen as well. Before we dive in, I just want to pray for the Spirit's movement, for God's hand to be a part of what we talk about this morning. God, we welcome you into this room in a special way this morning. God, we know that you are everywhere at all times, but this morning we just invite the presence, the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit in this room, that it would communicate directly to our hearts and our minds. God, that you would leave no stone unturned, that you would help us to gain a greater vision of who you would want us to be. We thank you for the words that Luke penned thousands of years ago, telling us the story of the early church, and we ask that by their example, God, you would stir in us newness, you would stir in us a sense of faithfulness that we may have not experienced before. In your name we pray, amen. So, since the beginning of the year, we've been slowly making our way through one of the larger books in the New Testament called Acts, uh, and it's going to take us a while to get through it, but we've gotten through all, this will be the end of the fourth chapter, and so a lot has happened in four chapters in the book of Acts, and this is really, in short, a story of what happened immediately following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. It's the story of what we now call the church, although that name didn't really formulate until hundreds of years after this book was written. And as we've gleaned from the previous three and a half chapters, a lot has happened in this early life of the church. Things are wild during the first days of the church's formation. People are becoming believers in Jesus by the thousands. The apostles, like Peter and John, they're out performing miracles. They're preaching and teaching with an authority and a confidence very few have seen before. The religious elite of the first century are ticked off. They want nothing to do with this commotion. This new group of people have started, and so they're after them, and they're trying to find ways to squelch its growth and its movement. I mean, people are giving up everything to be part of the movement of God in the world and through Jesus Christ and his church. And they have heard and they've experienced the risen Jesus in their life. They've received this new life by believing in him. And they've given over themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide their lives. And as a result, they are becoming this unstoppable, unflappable force in the first century. We, last week we saw that despite the threats of the religious elite in, in the first century, they're being imprisoned, they're being threatened with their own lives. Th- this group of people, they've decided, you know what? Bring it. I don't, you know what? None of that's going to stop us from talking about the risen Jesus. I mean, they are becoming an unstoppable force in the world. And all the while that all of this is happening, this community is being formed. It's being shaped. Thousands of people are gathering to hear about the teachings of the apostles and worship Jesus and 
share the Lord's Supper and tell people about Jesus and what he's done in their lives. And as it's formed, this community becomes a community unlike the world has ever seen before. There's something different, even a little weird, at least by the world's standards, about this community. And the author of Acts, a man named Luke, cues us in to some of the uniqueness of who they were and what they did, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Let's read it together. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So this is a really short sermon, and here's the sermon. If you own a house, sell it and bring us the deed, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. There's a lot being said here, though, in a very small amount of text. So I want us to go back and kind of dive into what Luke is really, you know, this picture he's painting of this community that's being formed. And he starts in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, by saying these words, All the believers were united in heart and mind. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And it's very intentional on Luke's part that he starts here. He's indicating that at the core, central to the first Christian's life was one thing, unity. They were united, Luke says, in heart and mind. Now notice he does not say they were homogenous, which means they were the same. He doesn't say everybody looked the same, everybody talked the same, everybody voted the same. He doesn't say that. He says they were United. The first Christians were an incredibly diverse group of people. They were diverse geographically, economically, racially, politically, theologically. They had different preferences, different ideals, different backgrounds, different histories. They spoke different languages with different dialects. I mean, this was an extremely diverse group of Jesus followers. And yet, Luke reports that in its infancy, at the core of who they were, they were united in heart and mind. Which ultimately was God's hope for his people from the very beginning. Uh, the formation of this new community was promised by God hundreds of years prior to them ever beginning to take step into the world. He says in the book of Jeremiah, God forecasts the kind of community he intends to create while God's people are scattered all throughout the Babylonian Empire at the time. And he says in Jeremiah 32, 39, And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own God and for the good, or for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. Similarly, the prophet Ezekiel communicates God's heart for this community in Ezekiel 11. He says, and I'll give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they'll obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Hundreds of years before the church ever started taking root in the world, 
God said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this ragged group of people, diverse as they may be, and they're going to be united in heart and mind. And in the book of Acts, Luke, the author, reports it's happening. Right before your very eyes, those promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere, they're happening. This community is actually becoming united in the way God talked about it. Now, this doesn't mean that this church was exempt from problems or conflicts. We'll see later in the book of Acts that they had all sorts of issues. But despite those problems and conflicts, they continued to pursue unity in heart and mind. It was central to who they are. So let's just talk a little bit about what that means to be united in heart and mind because it's applicable to us today. The reference of being united in heart and mind can be called back all the way to God's promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but it's very specific in how unity came to be within the very first church because not only did they believe with their heart that Jesus was the Lord and Savior of their lives, that they believed in the person and the work of Jesus, but they also knew in their minds what now their purpose was in the world. They believed in their heart that Jesus was the only way to be saved from their sin, and they knew in their minds that they had been commissioned to let the world know that same truth. And it was these two things that grounded them in unity, no matter what may come. And I love what Luke says next, because it's what Luke says next that actually gave them the ability to be united in heart and mind. Verse 32, the second half, says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. Felt that what they owned was not their own. There's something deep going on in the people of the first church here that Luke is pinning in on. One commentator on this passage says that the number one requirement for achieving unity in heart and mind is that a person, individuals, must crucify themselves. I mean, those are, those are some bold words. He says, listen, if you want to experience the same kind of unity the first church did where they were united in heart and mind, it starts with you crucifying yourself. Now listen, we're not talking literal here, okay? That's not what we're going for. There's a metaphor going on here that's deep within the heart of the New Testament. It's saying that a death to self must occur in order for the church to become united in heart and mind. Paul talks about this extensively throughout his letters in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in the same book, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's you, by the way, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their passions, their desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Even Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Luke says, look, it, nobody... 
Nobody was begging for their own way here. That they knew that everything they had, it wasn't theirs. That they had crucified themselves. They put to death this old life of selfishness and sinfulness. They were living this new life. And if the church today wishes to experience increasing unity, well, we must also make the decision to crucify ourselves, to put to death that sinful, selfish nature for the sake of greater unity in the church. This is a massive commitment to being united with people you otherwise wouldn't for the sake of carrying out the mission of Jesus in the world. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have conviction. There are essentials in our faith, and we know that, and we will fight to the death with that. But there are very few, very few and far between. And you know, I see a lot of division in the church, and you know what they're not arguing about? They're not arguing about those essential things. They're arguing about non-essential things. And you know why? Because they have not put to death the old life. They continue to lean into their selfish passions and desires. So let's get real for a second, okay? Because this is really important. If we want to be like the first church, if we want to follow their example, because here's the deal. If you don't like people who don't think, act, look, vote, or talk like you, you're not going to like the church. You shouldn't like the church if that's where you are. Because the church, universally, is the most diverse community the world has ever seen. Now, we, especially in America, have gotten this wrong. We like to build little homogenous communities where everybody thinks and acts and votes and talks like us. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's not what it looks like. And Sunday mornings should be filled with people who have come from all different walks of life, racially, economically, theologically, uh, just, you know, their backgrounds and everything, their, their, their past histories. I mean, the kingdom of God is composed of this tapestry of people from all nations, tongues, and ways of life, and neither you nor I can stop it. So let's embrace it. Let's be part of it. You know, I tell people all the time, and you may have heard this said before, if you don't like hanging out with people who aren't like you, you're not going to like heaven. You just are not going to like it. I mean, what was it about the first church that allowed them to see increasing unity? They put to death that old self. They crucified themselves daily. And it was this and only this that allowed them to be unified with one another despite their massive differences. If you're trying to get people on your side, you need to put it to death. If you're trying to convince people that you're right, you need to put it to death and instead work to get it right. That's who we are as a church, united Unity takes all of us saying, all of my selfish desires go to the wayside for the good of this community. That's hard to do. I'm going to tell you right now, it's hard to do because I like my way. And normally, my way is the right way. Right, Kristen? <laughs> you all just don't know it yet. Yeah? We like it our way. I like it when you talk to me about your politics the way I like. I like it when you talk to me about how we should handle our money. I like it when you talk to me about all the theological reasons that X, Y, and Z should happen, and it's the same as mine. We really get along. And if you don't, I don't really want to sit next to you. 
I can't stand it. I don't want to be a part of it. You're wrong. I'm right. You know this, right? We all go through this. This is not what the life of the church looked like in the first century. And it is not what the life of the church should look like in the 21st century. The life of the church is a group of people who are surrendered to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, united in heart and mind around his work and who he is and the work of the church and all the other stuff we could disagree about and still love each other and still walk through life. Amen. I love it. You know what? <laughs> I'm just going to be a little blunt here. I love that you say amen about that. But the reality is, I have watched person after person after person leave this community over the stupidest stuff. And you want to know what? Like, I, know, I bless them, whatever. You know, the kingdom of God's not hurt by that. But man, we got to get over ourselves. We, thank you. <laughs> We have got to get over ourselves and start to pursue what God wants in and through us. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.5. By the way, this passage is like the one you hear every time you go to a wedding, right? Love is patient, love is kind. But then right in the middle of it, he says something that none of us like. And we just sort of gloss over it like, yeah. He says, he says this, 1 Corinthians 13.5, did not insist their own way. Those who love do not insist their own way. We don't like that. Come on, I like my own way. Especially in non-essential matters of faith. But this is, this is what unity of heart and mind looks like. At First Church, they worked together. They figured it out. And it was rough. Where to see? It was rough at times. But they didn't give up. And they didn't bail. And they didn't point fingers. And they didn't t- talk behind each other's backs. And when they did, they called it out. And it was because of this increasing unity that something major began to bubble to the surface. Something that I don't think any of us attribute to happening when we think of unity. But this is what happened. As they became more united in heart and mind, something began to percolate to the surface that no one expected. Let's go back to verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. They put themselves to death, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon all of them. They were united in heart and mind. They would put to death this old life and their selfish desires and passions, and they insisted that their way wouldn't be the end but that they would work together to raise Jesus high and follow his commission into the world. And the result of that was they shared everything. They just started sharing their junk. And here's, I mean, for real. Here's, here's what the first church, and I want you to remember this. Here's what the first church slowly began to discover about themselves in Acts chapter 4. They discovered that increasing unity increases generosity. Increasing unity increases generosity. And it wasn't just them that figured it out. Look, the emperor saw this happening. These people are united, and all they do is care for people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. They are there for people in a way that even the Roman emperor knew they weren't. As they become more unified, put to death their old life, and living into their life as Jesus, 
there is this generosity that springs up from them that the world has never seen before. It's centered around the resurrection of Jesus. And God began to bless them in ways they'd never known or expected, and they become this generous community in a way they had never experienced and the world had never experienced. Luke then goes on and he describes what this increase in generosity started to look like. Verse 34, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Listen, now I know some people, oh, this is like, Socialist society. That's not what's going on here, okay? They're not just selling. That's not what's going on here. This is, a, this is an outpouring of generosity because of the unity they experience. They're so unified in their heart and mind that when they look around and they see people in need, when they look around their community and they see people without Jesus, they're willing to give up anything and everything so that they might experience the healing that comes in through him. You see, when Jesus becomes the center of your life, you begin to live into the mission he has for the world and you seek unity with others in his church by putting to death your own selfishness and sinful nature. And you know what happens as a result? You become increasingly generous. It is a natural outpouring of who we are as believers. And do you know what happens when a community of people commit to that very same purpose? Their increasing unity increases generosity. When a church decides we will be united in heart and mind, we will walk through conflicts, we will walk through disagreements together, we won't bail on each other, we will love each other, we won't insist our own way, we will work together through this. When we put our, our, our old selves to death and we nail our sinful and selfish desires and passions to the cross, and we follow into the commission of Jesus to bring hope and joy in his name into the world. Well, you know what happens? Our increasing unity increases generosity. Luke even goes so far as to give a specific example of someone who does exactly this, Barnabas, who, by the way, would later become part of the apostles' movement in and of the church. He sells a piece of his land and he gives it to the church to be used to care for the people, physically and spiritually in every way. The text says there was no one in need. People had what they needed. The poor and the orphan and the widow were cared for properly. The addict and the adulterer and the abused, they were cared for. The spiritual well-being of everyone who came to the church, it was taken care of. And it all started where? It didn't start by them looking in their bank accounts. It started in the pursuit of being more united in heart and mind. And what if, just what if, we became a church, as diverse as we may be, who was increasingly united in heart and mind? What if we decided to put to death all of our preferences and all of our opinions and all of our garbage for the sake of the good of the kingdom of God? What might happen? What could we do, small though we may be right now, in our community, in our world, if that was our genuine pursuit? What if our increasing unity 
increased generosity among us. You know what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. I'll tell you what would happen. Because I see it in the scriptures. More people would be cared for. More people would know and discover their purpose inside and outside the church. More people would experience the absolute gift of real relationships. More people would be freed from addiction. More people would be healed from past abuse. More people would know that they were loved by their creator. More people would not go without food or shelter. More teenagers would know they aren't alone in this world. More kids would discover Jesus loves at a critically young age. And more lives would be changed. That's what would happen if we decided we are pursuing at all costs being united in heart and mind around the person of Jesus and the work he's called us to. We say we want to be a community of changed lives, changing lives, which means that we want you and every person that comes to Genesis or is you know, tangentially uh, you know, in terms of like near Genesis to experience the changed life that comes through Jesus Christ alone. But we don't want it to stop there because we know that you have gifts and resources and abilities to go into the world and into this church and begin to help others' lives be changed. You being a changed life, changing lives. The more united we are in heart and mind, the more we're able to do this. The more generous we become and the more generous we become, the more impact we have because, we have because increasing unity increases generosity. So here's where I want us to start this morning. I want us to start this morning by laying our lives down. Jesus says that if you want to find your life, you have to lose it first. To give it up. To pick up your cross and follow him. To nail your sinful passions and desires to the cross. Listen, they're useless anyway. They don't bring you the joy that you think they do. They mostly bring you pain and agony. Put to death the old life of sin and shame and purposelessness and alongside everyone in this room and beyond to follow Jesus, united in heart and mind, to pursue above all else, unity in heart and mind with those around you. And then I just want us to watch, to watch what God will do in and through you and our community. Watch as we become a community of changed lives, changing lives, united and generous in ways we never thought possible before. This is your invitation this morning. Jesus is saying, come, be a part of this. Be united. Yeah, you're going to have disagreements. Yeah, you're going to have conflicts. Yeah, you're not going to agree with everything Ryan says or someone says. Man, we're in this together And when we pursue unity, it increases our generosity. And when our generosity is increased, there is incredible impact in our world. The kingdom of God moves forward. This is your invitation this morning. And so this morning, this is an act on our part to take action. This morning, we're going to take communion together. We're going to do it a little differently this morning than we have over the last couple of years. We have a couple tables around the room, uh, one on this side and one on that side, and there's crackers and little cups of juice that you can take for communion this morning. There's also the little, uh, you know, all-in-one cups if you feel more comfortable with that. 
But as you come to the table, I want you to remember what we are united around in heart and mind, the person and the work of Jesus. That he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserved and he rose again three days later so we could put to death the old life and live a new life that starts now and goes on forever and ever and ever. And this morning as you taste the cracker and as you taste the juice, may you allow the Holy Spirit to bring unity to you and the people around you. May the Holy Spirit begin to put to death those things that are keeping you from being more united in heart and mind with the people of this church. As you take the bread to remember the body that Jesus broke for you and the juice, the blood that Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins so that we could have this community, could be united in heart and mind, could be generous in a way that would impact this world, not just for today, but for eternity. In addition, I want to invite you to consider giving to our Benevolence Fund. Our Benevolence Fund is used to care for people in our church and outside our church. Oftentimes we use it to help them with basic needs, food, shelter, uh, bus tickets, sometimes with utilities and rent, whatever is going on in their lives. We use those funds as a leadership team and as a staff to help the people of our community. And you could be part of that in the same way that Barnabas was. You could be part of that. There's baskets at the table. You can just drop in some cash or check if you want to, or you can use text Genesis. Just text that number and text, or to that number, text GIVE. It'll send you the giving link. Within that link, you can select, under accounts, benevolence. And you can just give to that this morning. It's a way for us to live out, I think, what this early church was learning very early on. So I invite you to the table to be reminded of what we are uni- united around and to give generously to what God wants to do in and through our community. Let's let's pray together, God. Thank you for the promise of unity. God, we live in such a divisive world. And I know for so many of us, it, it causes pain and agony and stress and anxiety. And the last thing we want, God, is for us for those who may not know you to come into a place where that division continues to exist. Help us to be the new kind of community you talked about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, united in heart and mind, learning to agree to disagree and to talk and to love each other despite the differences we may have and instead be unified around the person of the work of Jesus and the mission of the church to go into all the world to make disciples of those who don't know about you yet. I pray, God, that you would ignite us in and here today. Help us to lay down our lives, to surrender our lives to you, to put to death those sinful passions and desires that get in the way of us being able to be more united as a community, that get in the way of us being able to love one another and the ways in which you have loved us. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus who gave his very life that we would be united 
whose body was broken, whose blood was shed on the cross, who died and was buried, who rose again, that we might experience new life, not just individually, but new life as a community. A new life filled with love and grace and mercy and unity. And God, we pray today that we would step into that invitation. That God, we would pursue it at all costs. And that because of that, there would be an increase in our generosity. That the things that we see, the things that we have, we wouldn't see them as just our own to be hoarded, but God, to be shared. That nobody would go without knowing who you are and experience the care of both you and your love spiritually and the care and the love of this community. God, thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.